Donald Trump. Not a president you'd associate with progressive views on climate change or conservation. But he served up a bit of a surprise for environmentalists earlier this year in an announcement he made at Davos. We're committed to conserving the majesty of God's creation and the natural beauty of our world. Today, I'm pleased to announce the United States will join One Trillion Trees Initiative being launched here at the World Economic Forum. One Trillion Trees. That initiative he name-checked is an audacious plan to tackle climate change. And yet, when you strip it down, it's a simple idea. Grow a trillion more trees on the earth to suck one-third of man-made carbon out of the air. This was one of the bigger moments of the week. This is the president who committed to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement, after all. It raised quite a few eyebrows, not least Tom Crowther's. He's a scientist whose work has done much to inspire the project. I was nervous. I mean, there's so many... He's been reducing regulations on environmental protection for so long that he's been having a really devastating impact on the environment. For good or ill, the one trillion trees bandwagon is well and truly rolling now. Since that announcement, the platform has been backed by dozens of powerful companies, as well as heads of state all over the world. But like anything worth doing, it definitely has its critics. So in this third episode of the podcast, we wanted to take a closer look. Should we actually put a trillion more trees on the earth? And why? I'm Kiara Kelly. And I'm James Bray. And this is House on Fire. Our house is still on fire. This is Thermopylae. This is Agincourt. We have to rise to this occasion. The transition isn't going to be easy. So I'm going to go right back to the beginning for people who are new to the Trillion Trees idea. Back in summer last year, a piece of research got published in the journal Science called The Global Tree Restoration Potential. Now, it may be a slightly anodyne title, and it might be a long and complicated read, but this piece got a lot of attention. Tom Crowther was one of the authors. From my perspective, the the Trillion Tree campaign actually started a long time ago, I think in 2013. I was was studying at Yale, and I was... um, living with my friend Greg Hintler, who was working for the UN's Billion Tree campaign. And that was being orchestrated by an organization called Plant for the Planet. But they didn't know whether a billion trees was going to be a big contribution or a small contribution. Ultimately, they didn't know how many trees existed to start with and what room there is for new trees. So it was hard to know the contribution of their efforts. So naturally, Tom gets involved. He's an ecologist. He thinks he can help. And he and a team of other scientists go to work. All they want to know at this stage is, how many trees are there in the world? Nobody actually knew. So how do you answer that? Lots of data. We started by collecting data from ecologists around the world who had information about the, the number of trees in their hectare, in, the, in, that, in their local area. And then once we started getting some momentum and collecting more data, we ended up building more and more and more onto these data sets. And we started collecting forest inventory data sets from, from countries around the world. And then suddenly it we we ended up with over, I think it was several hundred thousand uh, estimates of tree density around the world, from which we built a model that showed us there's around three trillion trees on the planet. And then last year, we found that we, we essentially mapped to which environments on the planet can support trees. And we find that there is room outside of urban and agricultural land 
for about 0.9 billion hectares of, of, of trees under natural conditions. Um, and these would support just slightly over a trillion trees. The next thing they want to know was how much carbon that many trees would take out of the atmosphere. Would it be enough to make a difference to climate change? We found that those trees, if they grew to their full maturity, have the potential to capture a lot of carbon from the atmosphere. We estimated in the order of somewhere between 100 and 200 gigatons of carbon, which places it right up there as the top sort of carbon drawdown solution that we've got to date. So a bit of context needed here. They reckoned that the 200 gigatons figure would be equivalent to roughly two thirds of the total amount of carbon dioxide that humans have added to the atmosphere ever. That was pretty exciting as it meant that this many new trees could actually be a real part of the fight against climate change. So they wrote up their findings and shared them with the world. Hence the piece in science. And suddenly things kicked off. You know, once the paper came out, I think the roller coaster began. We, we had this very simple, clear messaging about you know, there's this huge land available for, for trees that could store potentially uh, over a trillion trees. And this was, you know, received um, with a huge range of reactions, including very positive that people could get behind this movement. But then there was also a huge um, sort of reaction of criticism. And I think those criticisms have actually been really hard to take and really difficult, but also incredibly valuable for, for driving this, this movement forward. Most importantly, we neglected to, to mention the huge uncertainty that there is around that carbon value. But even if it was the absolute maximum, that 200 gigatons value is the maximum that those trees could potentially capture, that we calculated, once they'd reached full maturity. So that's well after 100 years from now even if we planted them all immediately. You know, it's, it's totally the upper, 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 upper limit of what's possible. Tom mentioned criticism. It's definitely fair to say that not everyone in the scientific community completely agreed with the paper's exact findings. There were plenty of quibbles about the methodology. But in all my conversations with this podcast, I didn't talk to anyone who disagrees with the core idea that there is space for millions more trees on the earth and that they can store meaningful amounts of carbon, as in enough to make a difference to climate change. And a lot of people seem to find the idea inspiring. So at this point in the story, you get one of those coin flip moments in life. Somewhere around this time, the science paper got into the hands of some pretty influential people. I want to just start by telling you a story, which is... This is Mark Benioff, billionaire founder of Salesforce, talking at Davos earlier this year. We were in the San Francisco Climate uh, Conference, and Jane Goodall was there. And we're telling her all the good work that the World Economic Forum and Dominic and uh, Doug McCauley's here with the University of California, Santa Barbara, are doing with the oceans. And she said, well, it's very nice what you're doing for the oceans, but what are you doing for the forests? And I didn't have an answer. At our World Economic Forum trustee meeting in August in Geneva, Al Gore said, have you seen this research from Tom Crowther? And I was like, no, I haven't. He's like, about the forests. And I said, well, I'm actually thinking about the forest because I was just with Jane. And then basically that same day, Doug McCauley emailed me and said, well, have you seen Tom Crowther's research? And I said, no, I haven't, but Al Gore just mentioned it. And when I said it, I said, what? One trillion trees will sequester more than 200 gigatons of carbon. We have to get on this right now. Who's working on this? The answer, of course, was the forum. Here's Justin Adams, executive director of its Tropical Forest Alliance. We chose to launch Wanti.org as a, as a platform to mobilize the extraordinary interest that's there from the business community, from individuals, 
uh, from governments around the world uh, around restoration and around trees. Uh, and it's one of the, the real um, uh, areas where I think there's, there's hope uh, in a year and, and, and where there's so little hope, uh, where people can see their individual action can actually make a difference, whether it's for the climate challenge, whether it's for biodiversity, whether it's for, for restoring water courses, you know, that this action of planting a tree is something that actually inspires so many people. Planting trees is something that, that relates to, uh, that every individual can relate to, whether you're a school kid or you're a, you know, a president. Uh, and so it's got that incredible power uh, and magnetism. Trees have also got this extraordinary thing. It's not like tech fixes to the climate. It's actually about reconnecting us to nature and, and the recognition that we are all part of one planet, one Earth. And so trees are this incredible conduit uh, for how we can uh, make that connection again for businesses, for, 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 for individuals, for governments. And so that really was what the 1T.org initiative was about. As you can imagine, things snowballed pretty fast after that. Fast forward just a few months and you've got the president of the United States committing to the initiative. And what was just a paper in a journal a few months back is all of a sudden very much a real world thing. Suddenly the internet was splashed with headlines like Davos elite wants to plant one trillion trees and Trump pledges to help plant one trillion trees, which sounds great, doesn't it? Who could possibly have a problem with that? It sounds like a big waste of money. This isn't a silver bullet solution. Uh, yeah, I would say it's, that would be a very expensive approach. Planting trees is the wrong way to be thinking about it. It turns out a lot of people, and we'll come back to all those in due course. Headlines about planting trees generated a fair bit of pushback for a few reasons. Greenwashing, for instance. Nobody wants to see polluters use tree planting as a get out of jail free card to carry on business as usual. As an example, the Trump administration is proposing to log the Tongass forest in Alaska, which is temperate rainforest, which stores a huge amount of carbon. At the same time, they're saying, oh, yes, we support tree planting campaigns. And a much, much more effective way to minimize carbon emissions would be to keep the existing forest standing. Um, and these are huge trees that you know, took hundreds of years to grow. And so we're not going to get this other carbon back sooner. That's Karen Hall, a restoration ecologist in California who's worked on ecosystems recovery for years. Her sentiments were shared by everyone I spoke to for this episode. She also raised something else that comes up a lot, that planting trees is a distraction from what should be the real priority, reducing emissions. Tree planting is it's, it's a very satisfying idea. People like, oh, this is a really simple solution. We can go out and plant trees and then we don't really have to make all these substantial changes in our um, you know, to our lifestyles and our economy and our whole economic infrastructure that's based on consumption. And those are going to require a major um, changing of how we operate as a human society. And it's a lot easier to say, oh, let's go plant some trees. And so I think that's why people have caught, it's caught on because it, it seems simple, but it's not. You're listening to House on Fire. We'll be right back after this. I've started to see the spread of misinformation as a global health crisis. It is an infection at the very heart of our democracies. On this week's World vs. Virus, fake news, conspiracies and lies, why the battle for truth may prove even tougher than the fight against COVID-19. We'll hear from the most senior communicator at the United Nations, who's urging us all to pause before we share, and from Mark Little, founder of Storyful, who says we urgently need to improve media literacy to be able to sift fact from fiction. If people cannot trust 
information about the critical challenges in our world today, whether it's coronavirus or climate change, then we cannot make reasoned decisions as a democracy. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy, Digital Editor at the World Economic Forum. And with a look at fake news and how to stop it, this is World vs. Virus. So for fans of the Trillion Tree platform, all of this gives pause for thought. Is it really the right thing to do? We went to the people in charge. Here's Justin Adams. The first criticism we have on on trees is that this is a distraction from the real work of of decarbonizing the energy and the industrial system. There's two points to that. One is that 25% of emissions do actually come from the land sector. So unless we address deforestation, uh, we can't actually solve for climate change overall. But also we are saying that reforestation the planting of trees is just one part of climate action and it cannot be a distraction. The second criticism that is leveled uh, at the program is that uh, reforestation or planting of trees is actually not the most important thing we can do uh, in the land sector because conserving our forests, particularly the vast swathes of tropical forests that we have, is far more important in terms of locking up the carbon that's there and protecting the very rich uh, biodiversity that exists uh, in these forests, as well as the rain systems these forests uh, support. And so as we talk about the Trillion Trees program or 1T.org, that is, we say, this is about conserving, restoring and uh, and planting or growing of trees. So this is not simply a tree planting effort. This is about actually getting businesses and governments to engage in how we can uh, manage uh, our forests in a very different way uh, into the future. And then the third criticism that comes is that this is somehow that we're going to sort of plant trees all over the planet, including across sort of native grasslands. And of course, what's so important there is we talk about the right tree in the right place. And our scientists know so much more about ecosystems now. They know what's right to reforest and restore in the scar burns of the Western US, or indeed to how the forests in the Amazon, if we can actually just take the pressure off tropical forests, the forests themselves will bounce back. So the, the wanty.org platform is not here dictating kind of how the restoration should be done. What's important to be stressing uh, for us is that this is about working with the communities uh, in the places, working with the, the local scientists who understand the local geography, uh, the terrain, uh, the topography, the, the, the climate, uh, and often uh, indigenous peoples who, who've, who've known for centuries, for millennia, how to live in more uh, balance with, with nature. And the platform that we announced in Davos was about enabling all of that, not an excuse for inaction, but really a doorway for how governments, for how businesses and how individuals could engage much more on the climate agenda, as well as the broader biodiversity and nature agenda. But 1T.org is an entry point for that, that enables us to then have a much, much deeper conversation. But what do people outside the project think? Folks with deep expertise in tree restoration who are completely unaligned with the Trillion Trees Initiative. One of the key things that came up again and again was the point Justin made there about this not being about tree planting, but tree growing. Growing a tree is by definition something that takes years of care and attention. Planting a tree is a momentary act. In fact, you could argue it's not even possible. You can't plant a tree. A tree is what you get 10 or 15 years after you've planted a sapling or a seed. 
And usually, if you don't put the work into caring for that sapling, you never get the tree. So while a lot of tree planting drives are done with the best of intentions, they're not always as effective as they might be. I spoke to Forrest Fleischmann, an assistant professor in the Department of Forest Resources at the University of Minnesota. He studied the effects of tree planting programs extensively in the field. We're just analyzing some data that we got from this Himachal Pradesh Forest Department of where they planted trees over the last three years. In the most egregious cases, we found some examples where they had planted trees above the tree line in the high Himalayas, so places where trees just won't grow. We also found examples of places where they had planted trees uh, in areas that already had a dense canopy cover. So there was no fundamental need to plant a tree there. And we found that more than 50% of the trees were planted in areas where our model predicts that they're not very likely to survive. It's easy to find other examples of this sort of thing. All the experts say that failure rates of 60, 70, 80% are common for these kinds of big target-driven planting campaigns. So rather than planting whole new forests, the best approach if you want to have more trees around is just to restore areas where old forests have been cut down, which sounds seductively simple, but guess what? I'm a restoration ecologist. I've spent my entire life, I've worked for 25 years on tropical forest restoration. And the whole goal of my work is to try to improve how we restore tropical forests. And I can tell you, it's not easy. Ecosystems are really complex and they're hard to put back together again. Even when we do a really good job of it, we often fall far short of what was there before. You plant a certain number of trees, and but you can't bring every, you're not gonna reintroduce every single species back the local condition of the site is usually changed. If you've cleared it and it's been used for pasture, there's all sorts of changes. Often the soil nutrients have been depleted. Often the microclimate, the climate there is very different. It's usually hotter and drier and so it's harder to establish. The other thing is that a lot of species have what are called mutualisms where they need another species to live. And so, for instance, if you don't have the birds coming back that disperse the seeds, or you don't have the pollinators coming back that were with the pollinated the plants, or you don't have certain microbes in the soil that help with nutrient cycling, then you don't have those interactions. Karen has won awards for her research on exactly this question of the best way to encourage restoration on degraded forest lands. And she points out that in many cases, forests can recover on their own with no human intervention at all. But those kinds of interactions she was talking about can be sped up by planting what she calls tree islands. It works like this, and needless to say, this is my gross oversimplification. Instead of planting rows of trees throughout an area to make a forest, you just plant small clusters of trees. Those are your islands. They attract birds and bats, which disperse other seeds naturally. The tree islands also provide good habitat for those seeds to grow into other trees and give you a more natural and diverse forest. It's a much cheaper and easier way to restore forests than large-scale replanting since nature does most of the work for you. This is a variant of what people in the restoration business call assisted natural regeneration, which is the formal term for a range of activities that all aim to restore trees in suitable areas by giving nature a helping hand, rather than by doing all the work ourselves with mass planting. So we're talking about things like fencing areas off to protect them or removing pest species, but not planting thousands of seedlings. I also spoke to Nicola Alexandre, a restoration fellow at Conservation International. 
His whole job is to find the best ways to scale up the world's efforts at restoring degraded landscapes. And he was pretty clear that this is the way to go. Given, given the tight timelines that we're working on, uh, from, from our perspective, understanding where natural regeneration could happen and working with governments and local communities to ensure that people that are on those areas benefit from letting those areas come back is, is the, the, our, our best shot at getting to scale quickly. Uh, and the ecology of those systems ends up being more resilient and more robust than if you're introducing uh, a lower number of, or a lower diversity of saplings, the way that it's just traditionally done in tree planting programs. This point about local communities came up again and again. Everyone we talked to for this podcast was emphatic. Whatever you plant, however you go about it, if the people who live in the area don't want the trees to be there, they won't last. Here's Forrest again. And typically in India, they build some kind of fence around those trees. But at night in the dry season, there's no, simply no way to make sure that no one drops a cigarette in that dry grass near those saplings and causes the whole thing to burn down. Or, you know, in the early morning, someone comes out there and cuts that fencing and lets their goats in there to let their goats graze on the grass and the trees. The... The social science is, it's not about planting trees at all. It's about changing the social and economic and political conditions that led to there not being trees there, so that they favor there being trees there. And we actually know a lot about what those conditions are because many parts of the world over the last 150 years have experienced large-scale forest regeneration. Uh, the northeastern U.S. and Europe experienced it more than 100 years ago. Places like Vietnam, parts of China, Nepal have experienced it in recent years, uh, parts of East Africa. And in each place, there's been a different shift. But I would say the commonalities that we see in all of these places are people have secure rights to their land. They have the ability to make long-term investments, and they see a long-term benefit from having trees on that land versus having whatever else they had on that land before there were trees there. This really is a local process, so it looks different everywhere you go. But I wanted a few concrete examples, so I spoke to Pedro Brancalian in Brazil. Pedro is a professor at the University of Sao Paulo's Department of Forest Science, and he loves forests. Even more significant from the point of view of this podcast, he is the vice coordinator of something called the Atlantic Forest Pact, one of the world's most significant restoration initiatives. The pact was set up in 2009 to restore Brazil's Atlantic Forest. That's kind of Brazil's less famous cousin of the Amazon. A huge area of forest that runs along the coast and folds in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo. The Atlantic Forest has suffered massive deforestation ever since Europeans first showed up. The silver lining is that, as a result, it has the potential for millions of hectares of restoration. The pact coordinates all the different groups in the region that were working towards the goal. So we're talking about farmers, companies, forest nurseries, NGOs, government bodies, anybody in what Pedro calls the restoration ecosystem. Across the millions of hectares he works to restore, Pedro has learned a lot about how to give local people reasons to love their trees. There are all sorts. This is just one example. One of the critical needs of restoration is to offset as soon as possible your implementation costs. But it's challenging because even if we plant the native trees for making a good money 
on high valuable timber, they may take 20 years at least before we are able to harvest these high valuable native timber species. So what we did in this project, so we intercropped eucalypts with these high valuable native timber species. We are talking about 30 different native timber species. And after five years, we harvested eucalypts from the system. And with the money we got from eucalypts, we were able to offset from 50 to 80% of all implementation and maintenance costs of restoration. And now we have a much better economic condition for making money on these native timber species in the future. It was riveting to talk to Pedro, and he had dozens of different stories like this. His key message, and I know I run the risk of sounding like a broken record here, uh, his key message was really that restoring trees is never going to be about one solution. It's about hundreds of different solutions. It all depends on who's on the land, who wants the trees, what grows well in that place. The more successfully you find the right solution for a particular place, the better you do at restoration. And again, this keeps coming up. It's not easy work. Pedro often finds himself sitting in the middle of folks who want very different things. Who benefits and what kind of benefits do we want? So, for instance, Benioff and many, many investors in, in tree planting, they, they want carbon sequestration. That's what they want. And this is the main benefit. The people who is financing restoration, they are bringing money to mitigate climate change. But if you ask to local farmers in Brazil, if they are interested in planting, in like substituting pastures for trees to mitigate climate change, they will not agree with you. They have much more, many more immediate needs than climate change mitigation. So Pedro's goal is to restore forests, but his job often turns out to be finding creative ways to align these different interests. And he's clearly good at it. Here's another great example for all the acai smoothie fans. So acai is exploited from, from native euterp, the genus euterp species from the Amazon basin. But we have uh, a euterp species of palm in the Atlantic forest, euterp edulis, which is an endemic species. And it's threatened because people have exploited it for palm heart. And now we developed a project to promote the use of the fruit pulp of this species, which is quite similar to acai. For me, the, the flavor of the, the pulp of the Atlantic forest euterp is much better than the one in the Amazon. And nobody knows this. Nobody has access to this excellent product. So we promoted the cultivation of these species in agroforests and naturally regenerating forests. And we got funding with other NGOs to create a processing unit. So local farmers and Quilombola communities, Quilombola, they are communities of escaped slaves in the time of slavery. So escaped slaves, they created communities in the forests. And we have descendants of these escaped slaves today. So we have right. trained them to produce the pulp of this endemic species in agroforests and second growth forests. And they have a processing unit. And today they are selling all of the pulp they produce. The municipalities of two neighboring cities buy this pulp to feed the kids in school because just like the acai that the world has come to know and love, it's super nutritious. At the same time, 
This gives landowners a great reason to love their trees. Before they could sell the pulp, they relied on grazing cattle. Now... I, I wouldn't say they make a good money, but they are making more money than they were making in the past. This is enough because people is not making a good money on cattle ranching in Brazil, but we still have 211 million hectares of it. Sometimes you don't have to make a good money. You just have to make a bit more of money. Okay. We're pretty close to the end for this week. Let's go back to our original question. What are we saying here? People should plant trees or not? Does the world need another trillion of them? What do people need to know? Well, let's be super clear. Nobody is saying people shouldn't plant trees. By all means, plant trees. But if you're going to do that, take the trouble to know that you're planting the right kind of tree in the right kind of place. And make sure you can look after it for a few years, or at least be pretty confident that nothing is going to come along and eat it. If you don't know what species to plant, you can consult your local forester or forestry guide. There are thousands of people all over the world who've dedicated their lives to forest conservation and restoration, so it shouldn't be too hard to find one. There's more information about them and about the Trillion Tree Initiative at the One Trillion Trees website, onet.org. They're also planning an interactive map on the Crowther Lab website, that's crowtherlab.com, which I'm told will eventually tell you exactly what species will suit your area. Thanks, James. You're listening to House on Fire. We'll be right back after this. We have a period of massive transformation upon us, and you don't get these that often. Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. This week, a special episode from the Forum's Pioneers of Change Summit, where 2,000 leaders from government, business and civil society are discussing where humanity can and must make progress. We're kind of the Victorians of the 21st century, building out all this infrastructure that enables us to be prosperous, sustainable and clean. Environment economist Professor Cameron Hepburn of Oxford University tells us what he sees as the most important technological innovations and European Central Bank Governor Christine Lagarde strikes a note of cautious optimism about the pandemic. We are seeing the other side of the river but there is a lot of work that still needs to be done. It's still going to be a difficult journey but one of which we see the destination now. Subscribe to The Great Reset wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Robin Pomeroy, Digital Editor at the World Economic Forum and with a taste of the Forum's Pioneers of Change Summit, this is the Great Reset. Well, as always on this podcast, we want to make sure you feel you know how you personally can help. After all, that was one of the reasons One Trillion Trees captured so many hearts and minds in the first place, by giving people a sense that they could be involved in the action. So what else can you do to get involved? Of course, you can donate money to tree restoration or conservation. There are thousands of groups all over the world doing this work. We can't list them all here, but there is an app called Plant for the Planet, which will help anyone anywhere find tree growing operations near them and donate. Finally, if you're listening to this and you're in charge of a budget, if you're allocating money on behalf of a company or an institution that maybe wants to get involved in carbon offset or tree restoration for any other reason, make sure you're aiming for real long term results, not just a target number of seedlings in the ground. Okay, that's it. Hope you've enjoyed the episode. Hope you've learned something. Maybe even been inspired to get involved in some way yourself. Please listen next week. We're going to be talking about a huge problem, plastic pollution, and what you can do about it. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.